0: Last week we were talking about, we started what I'm calling a, um, uh, the Resurrection Factor Series. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. but we're talking about, move some of this stuff out of the way. know, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that he is? He said, who do men say that I am? And it's a very important question. They were saying, well, some say you're this, some say you're that, some say you're a prophet and everything. And then he looked to them and said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, you know, the Son of the living God. And you know, the important thing is it's okay to, it's one thing to know what other people think about Jesus. But I just want to ask you a question Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Who is he to you? And last week we talked about the different things that some people would say that Jesus Christ, I felt, am I too loud? Or am I okay? You guys okay with my volume? Too loud? I'm okay. Okay. Um, Some people would say, "Well, Jesus Christ is was just a great moral teacher." See, I don't believe he's the Son of God, but I believe he's a great moral teacher. And as we talked about that last week, do you realize that we are not given that option of Jesus Christ just being a moral good teacher? Simply because he said that he was God. And actually, the only three options that we have concerning who Jesus Christ is is either he was a liar because he said he was God, but he knew he wasn't. So he was deceiving many people or he was a lunatic. He was crazy. He thought he was God when he really wasn't. So he was kind of kind of messed up in the head or he was truly the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Those are the only three options we have. So if you are kind of resting on the fact that, well, I believe Jesus is a good man, but I don't believe he was God's son. That's not an option you have. You have to make one of the three. Either you believe he's a liar, he's a lunatic or he's the Lord of Lords, and, uh, and like I was saying earlier, the notes that I have, the outline from last week, will be out there uh, in the hallway. So if you're welcome to take one of those. So we talked about what makes Jesus Christ so special, what we'll makes him different, what we'll makes him unique, because he is one of many religious leaders that have come on the scene, and people can say, well, there are many ways to God. Jesus is just one of them. But Jesus Christ himself said, "I am." the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's what Jesus Christ said. So again, either you believe him or you don't. He didn't say, I am one of the ways to God. You know, Christians get accused of being narrow-minded and and all that kind of stuff. Well, Jesus is the one who started it. He's the one that said, I am the way to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you might say, well, he can say all kinds of stuff. A lot of religious leaders said all kinds of things. Well, what makes that? Why should I listen to that? Well, and we talked about the things that God did to confirm and to prove, to validate who Jesus Christ was. And one of them was God, uh, many years ago, before Jesus was born, God said, my son is coming. My savior is coming to the world. I'm kind of paraphrasing. And here's what he's going to look like. Here's where he's going to be born. Here's how he's going to die. He's going to be betrayed by a friend, 30 30 pieces of silver. And the Bible predicted all these things about Jesus. So when he came on the scene, we'd be able to recognize that he's the one that God told us about. And we talked about last week that, well, maybe, because some skeptics say, well, maybe Jesus, he probably just coincidentally fulfilled the prophecies. In other words, the Bible says that the Messiah is going to fulfill all these requirements and Jesus just happened to come along the scene and coincidentally fulfill all those prophecies. Well, then the statisticians and the mathematicians say that if you take just eight of those prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, now he fulfilled over 300. But if you take just eight of those prophecies. And what is the possibility of him coincidentally fulfilling just eight of the prophecies? And the, and the mathematician says it'd be like uh, one chance and one times 10 to the 17th power. In other words, that's the the probability of of someone coincidentally fulfilling eight prophecies. And to give you an idea what that number looks like, uh, 10 times 17 to the power, that'd be like if you took, if you had that many silver dollars, and you marked a red X on one, and you filled the state of Texas with that many silver dollars, it would fill the total state of Texas two foot deep. That's how many silver dollars that is. And so the probability of someone coincidentally fulfilling those eight prophecies would be like a man, if you blindfolded him, took him to the border, uh, Oklahoma Texas border, blindfolded him, and said, You have one opportunity. You showed him the red X, the one marked with the red X. You put it somewhere in Texas, Corpus Christi, Dallas, Houston, somewhere. You just dropped it somewhere, mixed it in. That was blindfolded. And you said, You have one opportunity to find that, that silver dollar. One chance. That's the same probability of Jesus coincidentally fulfilling eight prophecies. Now, he fulfilled over 300. So the the math on that would be, we can't even wrap our minds around that. But the point is, is that God made it obvious as to who his savior would be. See, it's one thing for man to try to find their way to God. You know, I'm going to choose my own path to God. The Bible says that no one is righteous, not even one. In other words, we are not good enough in ourselves to make our way to God. And God knew that. So he said, you know what? You guys are not good enough because you've sinned and I'm holy and perfect and can't accept sin. So I'm going to come to you. And he sent Jesus to die in our place, took our punishment for us so we would not have to experience the punishment, the judgment of God. That's how much he loves us. He knew we couldn't come to him. So he came to us. And so we wanted to continue on talking about. What makes Jesus so unique and so special? And as I shared last week, I talked about when I was here at OSU and I was witnessing on the on the campus witnessing. And I came across a guy that I thought was interested in what I had to say. I gave him a track and we started talking and he started asking me these questions. He happened to be an atheist and a very brilliant atheist, very smart. And with his questions and his dialogue, he just tore me to shreds. Just mentally, emotionally, just I was just wrecked. I was devastated because I couldn't answer his questions. I didn't know what this I was a. A fairly young Christian, full of the zeal of God, just wanted to tell people about this Jesus that had changed my life. And so I came across this guy, and he just tore me up. And it, it devastated me so much, I went home, I left. My friends went home crying, just cried myself to sleep, basically. And before I went to sleep, the Holy Spirit said one thing to me. He said, remember the resurrection. That's all he said. Remember the resurrection. Next morning, I woke up, uh, ended up going to the Christian bookstore, found a book. Uh, called The Resurrection Factor by Josh McDowell, this book right here, which happens to not be in print anymore, so you cannot buy these new anymore. But you can get them used on Amazon or places like that for used and and, uh, for about $4, including shipping. Uh, But anyway, this book, read this book, it changed my life. It gave new meaning to the scripture when the, the one guy asked Jesus, he said, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, Your mind and your strength to love God. In other words, we can love God with every part of our being. We don't have to love him with our heart and soul and our strength and then skip our mind. Just kind of check our minds out because we don't we just take this by faith. There's no real evidence, but we just take it by faith. And that's not true. Not true pertaining to Christianity. And as I was looking at these things and and reading this book and other books, um, I discovered that Christianity is... The most intelligent faith out there. If you just lined up all the religions and you looked at them just on a pure intellectual basis and you thought, you know, I believe there's a God. So I need to submit to him, but I want to find out who's the right one, which is the right way, that kind of thing. And you just looked at purely an intellectual basis and you observed all of them, looked at the evidence. Christianity stands head and shoulders above every single one of them. There's so much evidence pertaining to the reality and validity of Christianity than any other event. I mean, the Bible has confirmed itself and been proven, although men have tried to destroy this thing, try to disprove it over and over and over again, who Jesus Christ is. And the thing on the resurrection, why is the resurrection so important? Because our whole faith is based on the resurrection. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins and our faith is worthless. Because Jesus said, kill me, and three days later, three days later, I will come back. So if he didn't come back, then he lied to us, right? And all these things he said and all these promises he said are worthless because he's still in the grave. But as the Bible um, and all kinds of sources that are, that are non-biblical sources, historical sources, prove that, do you realize there is more historical, there is more evidence More evidence pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other historical event. More evidence pertaining to the resurrection. Now, why is that? I believe God wanted to make it simple for us. Man makes it complicated. God wanted to show this is my son. I love you. I want you to see he's a man. Believe in him so that you can have a relationship with me. He wanted to make it simple for us. But because of the hardness of our hearts, our sinful attitudes and that kind of thing, we want to reject truth. The Bible says the fool says there is no God. You know, an atheist, a person who's a proclaimed atheist is a fool because he has to intellectually ignore the evidence to come to the conclusion that there's no God. Because there's the evidence is overwhelming. And so what I wanted to continue on today, we talked about, I wanted to continue on looking at the, uh all the evidence surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we started this last week. We're going to continue and finish it, finish it today. Now, last week we talked about all the things surrounding his, his resurrection. First of all, he was, he was, he was executed by crucifixion and we know that crucifixion was a very a horrible death and the Romans knew what they were doing. They knew how to kill somebody, not to torture and kill somebody. So they were very skilled in what they did. And so when Jesus was crucified, he was dead. He was, he was dead. And this is important later on when we talk about other things. Uh, it was a Jewish burial. We see that Jesus was, they washed his body and they wrapped him around with, you know, with the, with a the cloth. And they made this gummy substance that was real sticky at paste. And by the time, it's kind of like they encased him like a mummy. And by the time they were finished with him, uh, this encasing was about 120 pounds, 110 to 120 pounds. So he was wrapped in this. In this deal. He was buried in the solid rock tomb. There was a huge about two ton boulder put in front of the tomb. And there was a Roman security guard placed in front of his tomb because someone said, you know, that the the," Jesus said that he was going to be raised up in three days. And probably what's going to happen is his disciples are going to come and try to steal his body so they can say, look, he's risen from the dead. He's risen from the dead. They were telling the high priestess. He said, "Okay, go. You have a guard. Now go make the tomb as secure as you know how. In other words, we don't want this rumor, this lie to be propagated. So we're going to stop that. So set a guard. They use the Roman guard in front of this tomb to guard, to keep the disciples from stealing Jesus body, because that's supposedly what they were going to do. And then the Roman Roman seal was stamped on put on the on the tomb. Okay. now getting into part two. Don't look at the factors, the facts to be reckoned with when we talk about the resurrection. First of all, the the seal was broken. There's a broken Roman seal. Now, if you if there was a Roman seal put on something and you broke that seal. The punishment would be death. Even execution upside down. So because the seal represented the authority of the Roman government. And so for you to mess with that, you were defying the Roman government. And so there was a stiff penalty on that. And everybody knew that. They knew that if you mess up that seal, you break it, then you were going to suffer some severe consequences. But the seal was broken. Okay, on that morning of the resurrection, the seal was broken. Number two, the tomb was empty. It was an empty tomb. And the interesting thing is, is that tomb, Jesus was crucified and buried in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And Christianity started its origins in Jerusalem. Based on the fact of a resurrection that happened right there. Now think about it. Let's say if some, let's say that happened here in Stillwater. You know, all of a sudden the resurrection, you know, Jesus was made alive and everything. And you wanted to go um, tell everybody about that. Now, if you start, if, if I were to go to California and talk about that or let's say Germany, and share the news about this guy was resurrected from the dead in, in, uh, in Stillwater, it would be a little bit more difficult to validate that. Well, with the internet and all that kind of stuff, it wouldn't be. But if you're here, and let's say he was resurrected right here, and you go out all over Stillwater to, and tell everybody he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead, all they have to do is come here to this location and verify it. And that's how it was in Jerusalem. Everybody went to the tomb and saw that it was empty. No one produced a body, a dead body. So for the fact that, that uh, the church was started in Jerusalem, that's one thing that validates the fact that the resurrection actually happened. And again, there is more evidence to, pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other event in history. There's strong evidence. There's historical um, confirmation There are even sources that are hostile to the gospel that admit that the tomb was empty. Now, they have other explanations as to why the tomb was empty, but they admit the critics admit that the tomb was empty. And that's very important to remember that the tomb was empty. Number three. Remember that stone that was put in front of the grave. Now the way they describe it, there was a, like a small incline, and there was a, like a um, like a wedge or something in front of the rock. And so when they wanted to move the rock in front of the tomb, they were able to move that that uh, wedge, and the rock would just roll into place, kind of roll a little bit downhill and roll into place. Now again, the tomb, the rock was about two ton. The arc, not the arc, the engineers calculated the size of the rock that it would take to uh, cover the the, the the entrance of the tomb. So it was two ton. Now, when the Bible describes, I thought this was very interesting, when the Bible describes in the Greek, the original language, the tomb, the rock was removed. But not only was the rock moved from the entrance, but the rock was moved up an incline and away from the whole grave, the uh, sepulcher. It wasn't just scooted out the way just a few feet so someone can go in and out. The rock is, matter of fact, in, in John, the the original language, it describes it as if someone took the rock, picked it up and carried it away. Now, think about that for a second. If the disciples came and wanted to steal the body, do you think they're going to move the rock that far? Does that make any sense? And again, it's very interesting that when God does something, he, he does it loud. Does it obvious? The evidence is so clear but yet, people want to confuse the facts and everything. So the rock was not only you know slid over; it was moved out of the way, carried, picked up, and removed. There was a distance between the entrance and the rock. So keep that in mind. Number four. The Roman guard goes a wall. Something happened. A matter of fact, the Bible says that that there was an earthquake. The Angel came. The rock was moved and everything. And, and it said that the guard, they were they fell over as dead men. So they they were as dead men. And basically, they passed out. <laughs> they were so afraid, they passed out. And later in the gospel, it says that they went back to the high priest and they said, you know, they told him what happened and everything. But the guard, they went in while they left their post. And falling asleep at their post was punishable by death. And so what they, the story That they began to propagate when they told the priest what happened, the high priest what happened. They said, well, let's just tell everybody. They paid him money. They bribed the guard and said, we'll just tell everybody that the disciples came. You fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. Okay. That's what we'll tell everybody. And to this day, the Bible says to this day, that's the story that's been propagated. That as the guard fell asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. Now, falling asleep at their post was punishable by death. So, if the guard fell asleep, they'd be killed. And if it wasn't sure whose fault it was, they would draw straws or, or cast lots, and one person would suffer a horrendous death because of the failure of that guard unit. And typically, what they'd do is they'd burn them alive. They'd take their clothes off, set their clothes on fire, and burn the person alive. That was a punishment if the guard unit fell asleep. So, keep that in mind as well. Number five, fact number five. Grave clothes, tell a tale, grave clothes, tell a tale. I'm going to read after John chapter 20. To me, this is one of the most uh, compelling pieces of evidence. John chapter 20, verse one says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb so they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first and he stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths lying there yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the empty tomb went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths Lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. So, actually, the tomb was not empty, if we want to be technical. The tomb was not empty on that first resurrection on that Easter Sunday. Jesus' body was gone, but the encasing was still there. Remember that thing that they, they mummified and they wrapped around that gummy substance, encased him, it was empty. It was caved in and the headpiece was folded up nicely and put aside. And right there it says that one of the disciples, I believe it was uh, um, John, I believe, said he believed. When he saw that, he believed. Now, isn't that interesting? If someone were to steal the body, you think they're going to take the cover, the clothes off, leave it there, and steal the body? It doesn't make, make any logical sense. But yet the grave clothes were there. And number six, fact number six, his appearances confirmed. The fact that the Bible talks about, actually in 1 uh, Corinthians fifteen, three through 8, it says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of, a, uh, out of due time. So it uh, talks about now favorable documents and hostile documents. In other words, critical sources all agree on the fact that supposedly a bunch of people saw Jesus, that there were hundreds of people that saw him post-resurrection. They admit that. And some people say, well, he probably, he just appeared to his his followers, his close followers. He didn't appear to anybody who, uh, any any critics. Well, how many of you guys remember the brothers of Jesus? James and, and Jude, two of them. Did they believe in Jesus when he was on earth during his ministry? Mm-mm. They thought the dude was crazy. And they were even embarrassed by him. I mean, think about it. You have a biological brother, and he goes around telling people that he's God. I mean, you think he's crazy too, wouldn't you? And so Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. God, it was crazy. But yet... Something happened, and all of a sudden, his brothers become some of his most reverent worshipers. Now, what do you think changed their minds? There's only one event. You know, when James, actually James and Jude both wrote, you know, they have New Testament books. Uh, and I believe James describes himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. You know, they, they begin to proclaim him as their Lord and King. I mean, isn't that interesting? They didn't believe in him. Something happens and they become devoted followers. Also, as far as hostile viewers, do you think the Apostle Paul, whose name was Saul of Tarsus, do you think he was favorable of this Jesus character? You think he was thought Jesus was a cool cat? Mm-mm. Remember, he went around killing Christians who believed in this Jesus. So in other words, Paul was very hostile to the gospel, very hostile to the followers of Jesus. All of a sudden something happens and his life is turned around because Jesus appears to him. And so he sees the resurrected Christ himself. And the last fact, number seven, and this is pretty interesting, women saw him first. Women saw him first. Now why is that? What's wrong with that? Well, the the problem with that is Back in that day, women were not considered reliable testimony. In other words, their testimony, if a woman saw someone commit a murder, their testimony could not be used in court because they weren't allowed. Their testimony was unreliable. So the fact that the Gospels indicate that women saw him first is pretty interesting. In other words, if the, if the story was fabricated, if it was made up, Do you think the person or the men or people who are making this up are going to put women seeing them first? Because everybody would laugh at them like, are you crazy? We're supposed to believe that. That's just another indication that God was was behind all this. So we see all these different things. We see that the uh, that the tomb was empty, that the Roman seal was broken. The large stone was picked up and carried away. The grave clothes were still there. The Roman guard goes AWOL. He appeared to over 500 people, you know, several hundred people, uh, and then the women testified they saw him first. So we see all this evidence pertaining to the resurrection. Now I want to talk a little bit about a few theories that the critics use to explain away the resurrection. That, okay, they believe that the tomb was empty, but there's logical explanations as to uh, what really happened. And first of all, there are two principles that we have to consider The theories must take into account all the facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, you might find an explanation that fits parts, but it has to fit the whole of the evidence. You have to use all of the evidence when you're coming up with your theory to explain away the resurrection. And the second thing is, you cannot force the evidence into a preconceived conclusion, but let the evidence speak for itself. There are, um, and the first two, talk about. The unknown tomb theory, the unknown tomb theory. And basically, the proponents of this say that they really didn't know what tomb Jesus was buried in. Because back in the day when people were executed, that they believed that historians are believing that that many of them, they weren't even put in tombs. they were just kind of thrown in a pit, a common pit. So in reality, Jesus probably wasn't even put in a tomb. He was just thrown in some pit. So the disciples didn't know where Jesus was born. I mean born, where he was, uh, he was buried because he probably was just thrown in the pit. And another theory like that is the wrong tomb theory. That on the first Sunday morning, the women went to the wrong tomb. They went to a tomb. The, the rock was moved out of the way. The grave, it was empty. And they said, he's risen. He's risen. These are actual theories that, be, that people propagate and put forth trying to explain away the resurrection. But as we can see that these theories do not, matter of fact, it pretty much ignores almost all the evidence. Because remember that Jesus was buried in a private tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Remember that? It was a private tomb. You think he knew where his tomb was? So he was buried. You know, they let uh, Jesus use the personal tomb. He's buried there. And remember the guard that was set in front of the tomb? Remember that? So we have to look at all the evidence when looking at some of these these theories. Another theory is spiritual, spiritual resurrection theory. In other words, it says that Jesus body really decayed in the tomb, but that he spiritually resurrected. And that's what the big deal is about. Spiritual resurrection. Now, again, if you look at the evidence, remember the guard that was bribed. Remember all those things. Okay, another one. Um, And the the famous one I mentioned before, stolen by the disciples. Jesus was stolen, the body was stolen by the disciples. But if you look at that, look at this one for a little bit. The story is that the guard fell asleep. And while they fell asleep, the disciples came and stole the body and therefore they're propagating this lie. Okay, so if you were in a court of law and you were cross-examining one of the guard... I think one of the first questions would be, if you fell asleep, how do you know who took the body? Simple question, right? If you were asleep, then how do you know who took the body? So their, their, their story is going to fall to pieces. And also, we mentioned earlier that falling asleep was very improbable because of, the, because of their fear of punishment. There was a very strong attention to detail, like staying awake. So you're not burned alive. And as we describe how the stone was, the stone wasn't just moved over a little bit. It was moved and carried away. It was a great distance or a distance from the tomb. Do you think that's going to make some noise? If the guard is asleep, do you think that rock being moved is going to make a little bit of noise and wake somebody up? Of course it is. And then the last one, a piece of evidence that's very substantial, what you know about the disciples What you know about them, how they died, all of them except one uh, were martyred, killed. One was filleted alive. He was was skinned alive. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. Crucifixion by itself is horrendous. Can you imagine upside down? Um, All kinds of ways they were killed. Does it make sense that these guys who stole the body to propagate a lie, when all of a sudden they're facing their executioners and saying, deny this or we're going to kill you? That all of them are going to die for a lie that they propagated. Does that make any sense? Now, people will die for a lie. People do it all the time. But they sincerely believe that what they're dying for is the truth. You see what I'm saying? If a person dies for a lie, but he believes that that's truth, then that's one thing. But the disciples would have known that it was a lie because they're the ones that stole the body. So it doesn't make much sense for that theory. And that's that's one of the most popular theories. And yet it's um, it's a crazy one. And here's one. It's called the swoon theory. And this is a popular explanation of the 18th century rationalists. And what this swoon theory says is that Jesus Christ did not actually die when he was crucified. He was almost dead. He was almost dead. And when he was placed in the cool tomb, the coolness of the tomb resuscitated him. And he woke up and he appeared as the Lord of the resurrection. You know, here I am, guys. You know. <laughs> and these are actual theories that that uh, people propagate. But one, if you look at the uh, evidence again, Jesus was crucified. Bible says that that a spear was jabbed in his, his uh, side. Remember, and it said blood and water flowed. Well, that right there is a sure sign of death. And also when, when they crucified people, a person could hang and, and be cruci- or he could hang on that, that cross for days. I mean, they could literally stay there for a long time. Well, to speed it up, to get the party over real quick, they'd break the legs of the guy so that they couldn't push up anymore. And they'd suffocate. And so the other two guys that were buried with Jesus, they broke their legs. And they came to Jesus and were about to break his legs, but they didn't because they saw that he was already dead. Not almost dead, but he was all the way dead. And then, if that didn't kill him, remember they, they encased him in that, that wrapping, that 120-pound encasement. So he just breathed through that, right? Then they placed him in the tomb and, and all that kind of stuff. So that, that swoon theory is, is pretty ridiculous. And here's one that I thought was interesting. I didn't know about this one until I read it here. The Passover Plot Theory. And I'm going to read it on page 99. And again, all the things that I'm, most of the things that I'm sharing are out of this book called The Resurrection Factor. And then More Than a Carpenter. So if you're interested, if you're a guest here today, you're going to get this book uh, free as a gift. And otherwise, we have it for sale out there on the book, book rack out there. But on page 99, it explains the Passover Plot Theory. It says, according to Schoenfield, Jesus believed he was the Messiah and therefore plotted a very timely and detailed plan to arrange what appeared to be his resurrection. So he believed he was the Messiah, so he was going to set everything up so he could fake the resurrection, basically. Jesus took into his confidence Joseph of Arimathea and an anonymous young man. He knew of the many Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and ordered his life in such a manner that he could fulfill these predictions and manipulate the minds of people. Jesus arranged a feigned death on the cross by being administered a drug. Schoenfeld said the drug was given to him when the wine vinegar was offered. So you remember when they supposedly gave him the wine vinegar was supposed to be a drug. Uh, let's see. The plan was for Joseph to take his body to one of his tombs when the effects of the drug wore off. Jesus would appear alive and reveal himself as the Messiah. However, the plot was confused when unexpectedly the Roman guard thrust a spear into his side. He regained consciousness only temporarily and finally died. Before dawn, the mortal remains of Jesus were quickly taken away and disposed of so his grave would be empty. The unknown young man then was mistaken as Jesus by an emotionally crazed Mary. On four different occasions, the mysterious young man was identified as Christ by the confused disciples. Neither Joseph of Arimathea nor the mysterious young man ever corrected the misapprehension of the disciples. These appearances motivated the followers of Christ to go out and change the world. I like that one. That's my favorite. So Jesus made the whole thing up. He fabricated it, you know, tried to orchestrate circumstances to fake the resurrection. Plot got spoiled. And then this one guy everybody thought was Jesus. He probably, I mean, he must have been his identical twin brother or something. They thought it was Jesus because they were kind of messed up anyway. And so they go around the world proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does that make any sense? As I was mentioning earlier, God made it so obvious He made it so obvious about who he chose and who he sent to save us from ourselves and from our sin and from our our waywardness. And, you know, there's also circumstantial evidence that can be just as powerful as direct evidence. Now, the things we just talked about were the direct evidence, the empty tomb, the rock being moved, the grave closed and all those things. But there's also some circumstantial evidence that validates or, or points to the resurrection. One is the church. The church as we know it today, it was started in Jerusalem, the supposed place of the resurrection. If the resurrection had been a farce, if it had been made up, don't you think that the church would not be able to just take off the way it did? As a matter of fact, remember the people who killed Jesus, the the religious leaders, the high priests who were responsible for his death. Talks about an act that remember Peter and also backing up to the disciples who were who were afraid when Jesus was getting Tortured and everything. Remember, Peter denied him three times. And then when Jesus was crucified, all the disciples scattered. They were all afraid. They thought everything their master taught them is over. Their plan failed. So the disciples were afraid. They were hiding, scared, fearful men. And yet something happens in a number of days later. The same man who denied Jesus Christ three times stands up in front of a crowd of, of a number of thousand people, preaches the gospel, The Jesus, Jesus Christ whom you crucified God raised him from the dead. And 3,000 of those people get saved. Same city where the resurrection happened. Same man who was once a coward, now standing up boldly in front of these people, knowing that they could kill him just like they killed Jesus. He didn't care anymore. And then later on it says in, in Acts that, I um, can't remember how many thousand, but several, a number of thousand of the priests, religious leaders, came to Christ. The very enemies, the people who were Behind the plot of crucifying Jesus, they realized. Now, why would all of a sudden there be such a turnaround? They knew that the resurrection was true. Amen. So the church is circumstantial evident. Sunday worship. Do you realize that the the first Christians were devout Jewish people? And they knew the importance of the Sabbath. And they believed that changing the Sabbath or not following the Sabbath would uh, bring a curse upon themselves. So imagine these devout people changing worship from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday. What's going to make them all of a sudden go crazy and do something that drastic other than the resurrection? Baptism symbolizes people being dead and resurrected, you know, alive with Christ, communion and change lives. And as we showed the video earlier of a man, Miguel Munoz, whose life was changed as he came and met Jesus Christ. As he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now all this, the purpose of this, of sharing this stuff, is one just to encourage you as believers. That your faith in a resurrected Jesus is very sound. And it's it's substantiated by a whole bunch of uh, evidence. And so you can, you know, the scripture that says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, you actually can. You know, how often do we hear when our young people go off to college, like OSU or OU or wherever they go, and some of the professors take delight in destroying their faith, make them feel like that they're they're ignorant, that they're stupid for believing in this Jesus character. And I experienced it wasn't in a classroom that I experienced uh, um, a strong challenge, but it was at, it was at the campus when I was challenged mentally, emotionally and devastated until the Lord helped me through what I call brain food. And that was my purpose in sharing these last couple of weeks so let to just encourage you that you can stand strong in your faith in a resurrected king. Now, here's the other reason. Jesus Christ was not just some historical person. He was God. And I remember the Lord asking me this question years ago. I mean, he was setting me up. And it worked. But he said, you know, I thought these were my thoughts. He said, you know, if, if God is not real, then this church and this Christianity thing is a waste of time. You don't need to be wasting your time. I thought, you know, that's true. If, this, if God is not real, if Jesus Christ wasn't who he said he was, I'm wasting my time. If that's the case, then the main thing I need to be going after is money. Because if God's not real, then money is king. Would you agree with that? If God is not real, then money is king. And so as I was, my mind was starting to run away with that, because I was thinking, you know what, maybe I need to figure out more ways to get more money. And I was starting to run with that. But then he said... But, if God is real, if Jesus Christ is truly who he says he is, does he not deserve your whole life? Hmm, good question. If Jesus Christ is real, does he not deserve your whole life? It's a question I want to ask you. You know, a lot of times growing up, some of us can grow up in a church and be in a church or around the church for a long time. And then we kind of, we kind of, yeah, I believe in God, but yeah, I want to do my own thing. We're kind of going back and forth, back and forth in our own thing. Is he worthy of that? Someone who died a horrendous death, who went, who did all, you know, he left heaven. The most comfortable, wonderful place in the universe. He left that to come here and to be mistreated by us. To be. Savagely beaten and to be separated from his father God for the first time in his existence I mentioned that before but I think that was the thing when we see Jesus struggling with going to the cross I don't believe it was the beating he's about to go through although that would that would discourage a lot of people But the fact that he and the father and the Holy Spirit were together for eternity past They only knew being together and for the first time Jesus was about to allow himself to take on sin, which would cause him to be totally separated from God for the first time. And remember, every time when Jesus refers to God, he calls him his father. Father, my father, my father, my father. Then one time we see when he's on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So for the first time, he was ripped apart. God had to turn his back on Jesus, because, and God had to put his wrath on Jesus. Because Jesus decided to take on our sin. So that we can have a relationship with him. And so he did that so that you could have a relationship with him. The Bible shows and and teaches that we deserve the wrath of God because we've sinned and we deserve hell. But because God loved us so much. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not have to experience the wrath of God, but have eternal life. Someone asks you this question Who is Jesus Christ to you? Then ask you another question. And what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I was here at OSU going my own way, having a good time. I enjoyed college. I wasn't discouraged. I wasn't down and out. I wasn't strung out on drugs. I wasn't any of that. I was enjoying school here at OSU. Living the good life. But all of a sudden I had doubts, questions, wonderings. What's going on? Why am I here? What's life about? What happens when I die? And these questions were really going around in my mind. And it got to the point where I couldn't sleep. Because every time I closed my eyes and tried to go to sleep, I couldn't stop thinking about these questions. Ended up going to church with a friend. Afterwards, the pastor talked to me and he asked me a question. He said, CJ, he said, I have a question for you. Are you ready to give your life to Jesus Christ? 100%. 100%. He said, not 99, not 99.9, but 100%. And when he asked me that question, the Holy Spirit said, this is your answer. He's your answer. In other words, all those questions I had, the answer was Jesus, committing to him 100%. It took me about three seconds, and I said, yes, I'm ready to commit my life to Jesus Christ 100%. I was 18 years old, January 16, 1995, and I gave my life to Jesus been running with him ever since by his grace. And so that's the question I want to ask you as we close. Are you ready to commit your life to Jesus Christ 100%? You've known about him. You've been messing around with him. Maybe ignoring him. And you have to see that this right now is the grace of God. God's mercy is allowing you to hear this message so you can respond to him. I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes. The only reason why we do that is because everybody else does it. All bow your heads, close your eyes. Just kidding. I just want to ask you this question. Are you ready, regardless of what anybody else does or doesn't do, regardless of what this may change in your life? Putting all that aside... And not just making an emotional decision, but an intellectual decision as well as, you know, with your whole being, you can make this decision. Are you ready to commit your life to Jesus Christ? And if you say, yes, I'm ready to commit my life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Go ahead and raise your hand if you're ready to commit to him. Anybody else? Okay, and the second question, maybe at one time you did as a little kid or a long time ago when you were young, commit your life to Jesus Christ. But ever since then, you kind of gone your own way, maybe got into the college life, got into whatever kind of life. You decided to go your own way. and You realize, you know what? It's not about me. It's not about my way, but it's about his way. And you said, I'm ready to to give my life back to him to allow him to lead me and guide me and, and be my Lord and King. If that's you, would you raise your hand ready to recommit my life to Jesus Christ? Okay, good. Anybody else? Okay, great. I appreciate that. I'm going to ask uh, altar ministers to come forward, please. Dale and Teresa, if you guys would come up. Stephen, where's Stephen? You still in here? Wayne Nancy. You guys to come up. Now, why is this important? It's important that when we make a commitment that we, we take steps to show our, our true commitment. And what I want to ask you to do is those of you who raised your hands, you're saying, yes, I want to commit. I want to invite you to come up and allow one of these teams to pray for you, to encourage you, to share anything that they'd want to. So what I'm going to do is Pray. We're going to pray out loud together. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And then we're going to dismiss, and you guys will all go that direction where the food will be. And to those of you who have, want to make a commitment, you're going to come forward and we're going, to, we're going to pray for you up here, okay? So I'm going to lead you in this prayer together. Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I recognize that I am a sinner, that I've gone my own way. But because of your conviction, I'm submitting my life to you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and for being raised for the dead. I acknowledge you as my king, my savior. From this point forward, I am yours. And by your grace, I will walk with you every day. Thank you, Father. In Jesus name. Amen. Father, I just thank you for your wonderful presence this morning. I thank you for touching lives and drawing people to yourself. Thank you, Father. We can have this wonderful time together. And I pray that you bless our fellowship as we as we partake of food together. Bless our time of fellowship. And Lord, we just pray that you'd be glorified in our time together. And we just give you honor and praise. And we say thank you, Father, for Jesus. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Now, those of you who raised your hands earlier, I want to encourage you to come on up. And the rest of you are dismissed. And head on over to the fellowship area, and we'll join you shortly.